Great. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, uh, welcome uh, to the LSE. Uh, my name is uh, Savas Verdis from uh, LSE Cities, and I'll be your chair for the next uh, uh, 90 minutes uh, in this uh, uh, presentations by Professor Richard Sennett and Professor Nicola uh, Lacey. Uh, tonight's lecture is the first of a series of four lectures on welfare after beverage. So. Uh, put it in your diaries uh, every week for the next month. Uh, Richard will be uh, in this auditorium uh, presenting some of his ideas on uh, welfare. Um, uh, Richard, uh, as some of you know uh, very well, is a sociologist and professor of sociology in the school uh, and university professor of the humanities at uh, NYU. Uh, he has served as a consultant on urban policy to the Labour Party, uh, and is a frequent commentator in the press, uh, mainly The Guardian. Um, now, uh, I, I did some calculations prior to coming here, and uh, since 1969, uh, Richard has managed to publish uh, some book uh, on diverse topics uh, every three to four years. Uh, so that's a lot of books, uh, and you can probably predict uh, his age. And this range on topics like uh, uh, work, uh, respect, uh, craft, the public sphere, uh, and what I work in, uh, cities and architecture. Uh, Nicola Lacey uh, is school uh, professor of law, gender, and social policy. From 1998 to 2010, she held the chair in criminal law and legal theory here at the LSE. She returned to LSE in 2013 after spending three years as a senior research fellow at All Souls College and professor of criminal law and legal theory at the University of Oxford. So Richard has given us this uh, small enticing blurb for tonight's event. Uh, economic inequality is increasing the dependence of ordinary people on institutions which do not have their welfare at heart. Yet children, the elderly, and the ill are necessarily dependent. Mutual dependence is for everyone an ingredient of trust. We need a new logic of dependence. So Richard will speak for about 30 minutes. Uh, this will be followed by a short presentation by Nicola and a discussion between the two speakers. And we should then have about uh, 30 minutes for Q&A with the audience. And I promise to look to the top and get questions from the second level. Uh, for those of you on Twitter, the LSC uh, hashtag for this event is LSC Beverage. You'll see some amazing remnants of last year's conversations on the same hashtag, LSC Beverage, uh, from the celebrations that this university organized for the 75th anniversary of the Beverage Report. This evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to tech no technical uh, difficulties. Uh, but now, uh, will you please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Sennett to deliver his lecture entitled Welfare After Beverage, Dependence. Uh -huh. Well, I'm really glad to um, uh, use you as guinea pigs this evening for uh, a project that I've been thinking about quite a long time. And... Uh, you know that William Beveridge, in 1942, devised at the London School of Economics the outline for the welfare state uh, as it came into being after World War II. And I am going to, in these, these next four talks, 
try to imagine welfare in today's society, which is faced with very, very different issues, issues like automation or climate change. They couldn't have figured in his thinking much, but they should figure in our thinking uh, today. And my aim in this is to have, I'll explain how we can have this robust discussion online with each other as well as here. My aim in this is not only to write a book, but whenever um, the Labor Party manages to struggle back into power, to orient it to um, a new kind of, of welfare policy. Um, the broad um, emphasis that I have on this is that what we think about as welfare is uh, forms of support which apply to everybody, not just the poorest in society. And I just give you a little sense of how I'm thinking about that. Inequality has changed, for instance, the meaning of autonomy and dependency. Today's capitalism celebrates autonomy, but autonomy is possible in reality only for the few. Ordinary people are becoming dependent on institutions which do not have their welfare at heart. And these institutions treat dependency itself as shameful. So that in this lecture, I'm going to ask what could be done to make dependence dignified? In the next lecture, I want to take up another issue, that, uh, the issue that technology in the form of automation has changed the character of labor, posing the threat of mass unemployment or underemployment. And this basic change in the, um, in the way in which labor is constituted requires a fresh look at the safety nets of basic income. And I'm going to try and discuss with you what forms basic income might take. Um, in the third lecture, I'm going to look at climate change. Climate change was not, couldn't be a subject on the minds of beverages generation. But it's going to have a profound effect on rationing of resources. In his time, rationing seemed like an, only a temporary necessity. But shortly, it's going to become permanent. Uh, it will require sacrifices. Um, these, those are categories that didn't figure in the thinking of the welfare state originally. But the questions of rationing and sacrifice that apply to the whole society will be ones your generation, particularly students here, are going to have to face. Finally, in the final lecture, I take up the classic debate between state and society in, provi in providing diff is, is different today than it was in uh, uh, Beveridge's time, state and civil society. Uh, the distinction between public and private is over. That's a distinction that no longer makes any sense. So what we have to think about are what are the issues 
in providing help for people which require face-to-face voluntary assistance and which should be impersonally managed. And here I want to look at the difference between the opioid epidemic, which um, has to be, I think, managed face-to-face, and the decay of social housing, uh, which cannot be managed uh, except by impersonal state means. Uh, So that's the overall shape of what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a very compressed overview of this. Um, And um, I thought I might start. This is not an abstract discussion to me. I thought I might start by um, saying that on a personal note, that I grew up in America in something like the welfare state as Beveridge wanted it to be. And what happened, I grew up in social housing, it was extremely, my family very poor. Uh, the welfare state kept us afloat. And I'll just show you where, if I can make this work. This is where I grew up. This this little corner here. And looking out my window today, this is what I see. This is all renovated, privatized social housing. And these are my neighbors in 1991 who were displaced to remake uh, a much better form of social housing. But they were all dispossessed in order to make something where people could own their own houses and so on. So for me, this is a very personal thing. How do you get a welfare state that supports uh, people in real need, as I and my family were, and doesn't provoke this kind of dispossession and uh, betrayal uh, by the state? So in in this talk, I'm going to very quick, oh, and I should say about this that I'm going to show you a lot of data. And you know, when you usually look at charts online, you know, they go for a moment, and you're sort of going, what was that about? So thanks to my wonderful research assistant, Sasha Milanova, who is here, we've created a website. And the website has uh, all the charts and also has, it's interactive, leave me comments, tell me what I've done wrong, and, uh, and I will respond back. And everybody can see everybody else's comments, so this is great. So, but the main thing is we've done a lot of research for this, and so I'm not going to explain these charts in great detail. I'm first going to talk about destructive dependency. Uh, In new capitalism, a phrase I like more than neoliberal capitalism, um, it stigmatizes dependency in the workplace and celebrates autonomy. There are a couple of reasons for this. The dismantling of the work structure, which was the old pyramidal work structure, and the kind of long-term relations between labor and capital 
has meant that um, the goal is to be, I don't have to tell any of this, an autonomous worker in a situation where there are a few institutional supports. And what this has done has left people without this pyramidal structure, has left people at the bottom more dependent on those at the very top. You know this in the gig economy. Uh, you don't actually, if you're an Uber driver, there's, you can't call anyone, right? The algorithms are set by, in, in this company, Eber employs 43 people to, for this huge workforce. So the effect of that is to um, mean that the effective relations between labor and capital are growing more and more distant, farther apart. Um, but there is a further effect of this, and that is that uh, as inequality grows, um, there, is a, uh, there is a rise of debt, which means that there's dependency on institutions, i.e. banks and uh, the, the people who own debt, as in student debt, who are only interested in being repaid. They're not interested in what you've done with your education, and they want to be repaid as soon as possible, uh, charging you, as, as I don't have to tell you this, uh, outrageous rates of interest. That's a kind of dependency that increases, um, and I'll show you what these charts look like. Oh, I should first say, this is what welfare spending in the UK looks like. Um, and here's how th that welfare spending is broken down, okay? Now, uh, I also don't have to tell you, but this is a nice uh, chart. We use, we, don't, uh, we use Palma ratios to measure inequality. It's much better, uh, it's, a, it's a really good measure. And uh, you can see Britain is at the top of this Palma uh, uh, measure, with only the U.S. above it. Now, here's what I want to show you about the debt. Here is a way of understanding the relationship between Palma measures of inequality and uh, debt. Uh, you can look at it from the top. I'm almost afraid of these things. They're going to explode. Uh, uh, this is inequality of wages and debt, and here's uh, annual income. And you can see that here, as income declines, the debt rises. It shouldn't surprise you very much, but uh, that is, and I focus on this because I'm going to talk about it later. Um, and here's another way to look at household debt. So people are becoming more economically dependent as inequality is rising in the society. Now, here's a way of understanding who needs help with uh, debt. Uh, oh, one thing that we've broken out here. And you can see what, uh, what, what kind, what kind what, where people uh, are vulnerable, people who rent rather than own, 
people who are mired in credit card debt, who are young, and who are single. So that is um, the issue that where you have increasing reliance on an economic system that only wants to be repaid. And uh, it would be okay if, if as in neoliberal um, thinking, you know, that uh, stuff at the top rises all boats. But as we know, social mobility is declining, and we are champions of declining social mobility in this country. This is what it looks like in compared to the rest of Europe. So we have uh, our social mobility is declining, our inequality is increasing, and our economic vulnerability is also increasing. Uh, the result here is to combine, combine dependency and insecurity. That the ordinary citizen is stigmatized for being um, uh, not independent and also rendered vulnerable. And this to me is a sort of basic condition of destructive dependency. Against that, there are forms of dependency which all human beings, oh, here's some more of this stuff, it's so depressing. Um, against that, there are forms of constructive dependency. And they're not the way economists think about this, but the way psychologists and anthropologists think about it. Um, this uh, is, I've learned a lot from this. This is the work of the psychologist Eric Erickson, who asked, where does autonomy come from? And his answer to that embodied in this chart about uh, ego development is that it comes from experiences of uh, being able to rely on other people, to trust other people to do what you can't do for yourself. And if you have that trust as a young person, you'll become, as a child, as a young person, you'll become more autonomous. But autonomy is a product of this kind of constructive dependency. I mean, it's obvious to us, for instance, in armies, where if you couldn't depend on, uh, on uh, superiors, uh, you would be wiped out. And it's also true in the cooperation at work. Locke is our origin for this. Locke's that so-called neoliberal icon. Locke's whole theory of, of government is based on the notion that you have to be able to depend on others for things you can't provide for yourself. And that's true in every work environment. So this is a kind of psych psychologically... Uh, the, the ability to cooperate and to trust are things that grow out of experiences of dependency. Anthropologically, uh, I'm very interested in the notion advanced first by Marshall Salins in a book called Stone Age Economics, although it's not about economics, uh, of the idea of generalized reciprocity. And I'm going to explain this to you very briefly. 
by referring to the Chinese version of generalized reciprocity, which is called guangqi. I'm sure my Chinese pronunciation is horrible, but anyhow, that's... And what that is, is that if you uh, need somebody else for something, say you need to borrow from your, your aunt the money to go to university, that at some point and in some way you will repay uh, that help, but not in the exact form. It's uh, generalized uh, reciprocity means that you'll give back something uh, which is not contractual in the sense of um, if I give you X, pay me that money back. When your when your aunt became um, um, say she had Alzheimer's, your way of paying her back would be to sit with her two or three hours every day. So it's what's called asymmetric reciprocity in the sense that are we buzzing? I don't know. Uh, uh, it's, it's this room. I don't know. That it's something that you don't give back in kind. And the other thing about it is that its time frame is extremely long term. So you can be in debt to somebody for decades, and when you give back to them in this form, say I've taken care of your aunt who's had Alzheimer's, um, that it happens long after you contracted this obligation to her. Uh, uh, um, Now, Guanxi has lots and lots of other aspects to it. But the, these are the, its two fundamental structural characteristics, that it's asymmetric and uh, that it's something which is not tight time, it's long time. You can think about this in terms of, say, student debt here, that you could discharge a student debt by doing care in the community, uh, uh, if you were on housing benefit, that you might um, uh, take care of the gardens and the, and the uh, housing estate you lived in. Uh, there are lots of ways to do this. Uh, but the notion of this reciprocity is that you feel an obligation by being dependent, but that you manage the terms in which that obligation is um, is expressed with other people. That's that is, that is reciprocal. Um, that's this this idea of of um, reciprocity. So, in my own thinking about this, I have tried to look at how we could take these ideas of positive dependency and of of trust in others uh, and of reciprocity, uh, cooperation, and build them into a new kind of welfare state in order to give people a sense that they have dignity in their uh, dependence. Uh, And the principles that what I'm after
is that those who are helped should have agency in deciding how they will act, what they will do within the framework of obligation and mutual reciprocity. They will have agency rather than autonomy. That's a key, to me, that's a key analytic in this. How do you give people who are in the scheme of positive dependency agency a sense that they have standing, that they're dignified rather than autonomy? I've mentioned the student loan thing as an example of this pay off other kinds of uh, in, pay can be in, paid off in kinds and other kinds of social or public activities chosen by the dependent. You could, for instance, pay off your loan by working in a hospital or joining the army, although I'd be very sad if you did that, uh, uh, or care for a housing estate. It's the, another way to think about this is that this is participatory welfare. If you go, think back to the images I showed you of my childhood home in this American housing estate, we practiced something like that um, in that we were, um, all the housing estate was basically taken care of by the people uh, who lived there in response, in response to a reduction in rent. When it was gentrified, uh, professional lawn carers and sweepers were brought in. And the people on the housing estate who benefited from that were passive recipients of a form of, at first subsidized welfare, and then they had to pay for it as it was privatized. But the notion was that you uh, passed from being an agent dealing in your own way with the obligation to return something to people that you were helped to somebody who was a consumer. And my worry about this is that that has become a kind of model for making the modern welfare state. I'm going to try and make this specific by talking to you for just a second about universal credit which is the right wing's version of welfare reform today. Um, the universal credit scheme that operates in Britain is organized so that all the benefits of uh, adults, working adults, are rolled into one, uh, disability, rent subsidy, uh, uh, various kinds of loans, so that you get one payment, and that payment is always calibrated so that you have more incentive to work rather than not to work. So you get just a little less uh, from that benefit than uh, if uh, it's calibrated so that you, you've always got this, it's just a little short so that you are always um, in search of work instead of being that lazy welfare recipient sipping gin and tonics, you know, and, and uh, watching telly. Uh, the result of it has been an incredible disaster. 
also, uh, you want to take a look at this later. It's increased the use of food banks. There, it's horrible. Um, it's a horrible system. Um, you can see how it's dysfunctionally working. And the civil servants who devised this under great duress, under great pressure, uh, f originally from the darling Theresa May, uh, are finding it almost impossible to ex execute. Um, the idea, uh, I'll show you some more of these horror things. <clears throat> um, why has the system failed? It's failed not simply because, it, 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 it's failed at the very fundamental level that I've been trying to explain to you tonight. Um, it assumes that independence has to be forced. That is, the independence that, that is signaled by going to work. And the means of doing that is a single number calculation of means testing. And I want to talk to you about that um, uh, in, in particular. Means testing by a single number is a kind of humiliation and a kind of negation of people's agency. If you think about taking tests, you know where you get a score from 70 to 100? That's flattened out. Uh, all sorts of diverse kinds of capabilities you may have. Um, it's homogenized uh, your learning in the class to something which uh, is really, should have been much more complex than that. Um, and it is a way of humiliating people and welfare by saying that the means will always be, the, the means test will always be something that where that single number represents the cutoff between being an independent agent and being somebody willing to take less because you're lazy or drinking coladas and so on. Um, Structurally, what that is about is that that's the uh, way in which all closed systems work. A closed system is one which veers towards univariate rather than multivariate analyses, and in which an algorithm is written which irons out differences in order that that single number can be produced. What I have in mind is an open system of welfare, where there are many measures of value, of input, for instance, uh, that um, taking a student loan equals um, taking care of uh, a person who's on, uh, who's has Alzheimer's. They're asymmetric, uh, and asymmetries are always part of um, open systems, and they're path-dependent, that what happens to you in your life will determine the ways in which you fulfill obligations in other people. 
above all, an open system of welfare, is trusting. Rather than starting with the notion that poor people or people in need are necessarily uh, people who are trying to get away with something, it honors them with the notion that they're capable of experiencing obligation and dealing with it, as in Guangxi. So this is what I think we should want, an open, participatory, multivariable welfare system in which those in need are treated as meaningful agents and dignified. They are agents rather than objects of care. So that's how I'd like to, to, to start this. Good evening, everybody. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be here, and as you can imagine, it was both an on, honor to me as well as a pleasure to be invited to uh, respond to this first lecture in Richard's series. Um, however, there are, of course, uh, some risks involved in agreeing to respond to a lecture with which one knows from published work and knowing Richard personally, I was likely to be in substantial agreement, and indeed I find myself to be. So what I'm going to really do is pick up on, on just three themes and really try to just throw in some supplementary ideas which might help us to think through some of the very important points that Richard has raised. And the three things I want to talk about are, first of all, what I'm going to call a sort of denial of dependence in social culture. One of our dear friends and late LSE colleagues, Stan Cohen in the sociology department, wrote a wonderful book. His last book was called States of Denial, and I want to sort of argue that there is a kind of developing state of denial about dependence in our public discourse. Um, Secondly, I want to uh, go on to the question of autonomy and how we think about and conceptualize autonomy, uh, thinking particularly about an interesting literature on what's known as relational autonomy. And then finally, I'm going to come to the question uh, raised on my slide here of the uh, political economy of care and, in a sense, what these questions about dependence, autonomy, agency uh, raise, what questions they raise about what we might call the supply side uh, here. So uh, dependence and denial. Um, I think it's really true and increasingly true for reasons that we might want to debate that a, a certain kind of social and public discourse in, in liberal democracies, perhaps notably one founded in an idea of individual rights, can involve a certain kind of denial of the obvious facts of human interdependence. Um, and that, I think, is strongly associated with the ease with which we can get into this terrible phenomenon that Richard noted, which is a sort of tendency to stigmatize dependency and indeed to uh, shame people who are in various ways dependent, as indeed, of course, we all are, uh, not even just at some times in our life, every day of our lives we have needs, we have dependencies. Um, and um, I think this uh, idea of sort of the, the, uh, the denial of, of dependence is almost at the level of a kind of social fantasy. Um, 
It's a sort of fantasy of independence, of self-sufficiency, of, dare I use the word in this very sad political moment, a kind of uh, sovereignty. Um, and um, in recent debates in psychology and sociology, as in feminist theory, there's been a particular debate about the relationship between this kind of fantasy of independence and self-sufficiency uh, with certain understandings, perhaps somewhat extreme understandings of masculinity, uh, with really bad impact, by the way, on men's mental health, inter alia. Um, but the sort of literally fantastic quality of the denial of dependence has actually long been recognized. And I thought it was interesting, Richard, that you mentioned Locke, because if we go back to the early origins of liberal thought, actually dependency was thoroughly recognized. And I'm just going to let you into a bit of a secret here, which is that I'm a UCL uh, graduate, which is my excuse for invoking Jeremy Bentham at this point, but don't worry, it's, it's one of Jeremy Bentham's more readable and amusing contributions. And it was a little essay called Nonsense Upon Stilts, uh, which mounted the argument that the idea of natural individual rights was a sort of anarchical fallacy, to use Bentham's rather typically hyperbolic language. So I'm going to give you a very, very quick quote. All men are born free... All men remain free? No, not a single man, not a single man that ever was or is or will be. All men, on the contrary, are born in subjection and the most absolute subjection, the subjection of a helpless child to the parents on whom he depends every moment for his existence. In this subjection, every man is born. In this subjection, he continues for years, for a great number of years, and the existence of the individual and the species depends upon his doing so. Now, if you know anything about Bentham's own life, it's hard not to detect uh, in that passage a certain echo of perhaps his own experience of filial subjection. But whatever the source of his insight, the serious point is that it's striking for its recognition of the way in which the rhetoric of rights, and of course, Social and economic rights try to chip away at this, but there is a way in which a, a rhetoric of sort of individual rights can fall into feeding the assumption that the subjects of rights, rights holders, are atomistic, freestanding, independent individuals, autonomous individuals, in sharp contrast to the actual position of humans as interdependent social beings living in a network of relations which are central to our status and capacities as legal and political subjects, but also probably as reasonably emotionally functioning uh, people. Now, of course, there are strong resonances here with, with feminist arguments about the way in which the image of humans as independent individuals marginalizes the value of nurturing roles, which have been the lot uh, in many societies primarily of women, and hence obscures the sort of dependence of the species also on women's reproductive labor in its very broadest sense. And that really brings me on to my second question, which is the question about autonomy. And Richard has registered some doubts about whether autonomy is the right concept here and perhaps whether we should be looking more at the question of agency and reciprocity. And I, I, I'm all for agency and reciprocity, but I want to just pause for a moment and think about whether there are other ways in which we could think about autonomy, which perhaps might chip away a little bit at what I think you and I find problematic 
about the role of autonomy in this debate, which is the suggestion that there is a sort of antinomy between autonomy and dependence, that if you're dependent, you can't be autonomous. And um, there's actually a big literature, which LSE's own uh, political theorist Anne Phillips has been an important contributor to, and much of it a feminist uh, literature, though not exclusively a feminist literature, which really resists this dichotomy between autonomy and dependence and does so by building up what's known variously as a relational or situated conception of autonomy in which reciprocity and, in a sense, dependence, physical, emotional, social, is actually at the centre of our picture of social life. The very extensive implications of this view for the organisation of law, politics and social relations is probably most thoroughly worked through, I think, by a Canadian legal and political theorist called Jennifer Nadelsky in a book called Law's Relations. But for this evening, it's sufficient really to say that this literature sits very comfortably with Richard's call for a new logic of social relations to be recognised in our welfare arrangements. But it might lead us to think that in conceptualizing the argument in terms of a new logic of dependence, it'll be important not to imply that dependence necessarily threatens autonomy, because whether we like it or not, I don't think the language of autonomy is going to go away. And so I think I would very much advocate resisting that kind of dichotomized thinking. And I feel a bit, I hesitate to say this because I haven't read the psychology research, I'm afraid, on which your developmental chart was based, but I thought it was interesting that many of the things were put in terms of a one thing versus another, independence versus, whereas, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who has days when I definitely have both a strong sense of identity and quite a lot of role confusion, just to take one of those <laughs> antinomies. Um, now, uh, on the days when I'm feeling role confusion, uh, one of the things I'm sometimes doing, like probably everybody in this room, has also had the experience of dealing with other people's dependency. I'm not a parent, but I do have responsibility for an elderly and beloved relative. And um, that's made me think a lot about care as a, uh, an activity and also about the political economy of care. Um, and I think if we're thinking about a new logic of welfare, we, needed to, we do need also to think about that supply side and about how we organize that supply side uh, and what that implies about how we are uh, theorizing and representing dependence and particularly in relation to dignity and, uh, and uh, stigmatization as the other side of that very worrying coin. And of course here, the whole question of the marketization of care and the extraction of value from the labor of care workers becomes a very uh, important thing to be thinking about. So if the need for care is, a, is just a sort of absolutely standard feature every day of our lives, physically, emotionally, medically, morally, educationally, whatever it might be, it's a pervasive fact of all autonomous human life, um, this then implies, I think, significant obligations on not just the state, but on individuals and on all kinds of social institutions. And how adequately those obligations uh, are discharged depends on a lot more than merely funding or providing institutionally for arrangements for care. It's also a question of how society thinks about care particularly about not those who are the subjects 
of care, if I can put it that way, not the objects of care, but also those who are the providers of care. And it's here, as much as in the sheer retrenchment of the funding, that there is so much, I think, that needs to be changed and rethought. You've already mentioned, Richard, that care work is increasingly in the hands of private agencies whose workers are typically in uh, the gig economy on zero-hours contracts. And that is a situation in which the market is allowed, indeed encouraged, to extract maximum profit from care needs within an increasingly deregulated labor market in this country. And it leaves both those on the demand side and those on the supply side extremely vulnerable. And that was why our Commission on Gender Inequality and Power at the LSE a few years ago, um, to give it a little plug, uh, argued for, you know, that we should be thinking about a national care service alongside a national health service, and this was the way in which we, we thought about it, and we tried to say something about, you know, the respect for those who are providing the work as much as the, uh, the uh, concern for those who whose needs require some kind of organized care at various points in their lives. Um, now, I think, so one interesting thing would be, is that just old welfare, I think? You know, so that's something we could, we could debate. I won't, I won't say any more about it now. But just on a final note, I thought, just to be slightly lighthearted about this very um, serious topic. So like quite a lot of us, I hope there's nobody here from an HR department, but if there is, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we've all plowed our way through appointments processes that, where we've got about 20 essential job specifications and essential requirements, and some of them have to do with characteristics, and some of them have to do with experience, and some of them have to do with um, qualifications and uh, God help anybody who tries to write an algorithm to put them together. But here I had a think uh, watching the carers who, who helped me so wonderfully look after my elderly relative. And I thought about what they really need and when it's going well and what I castigate myself for not managing to do sometimes when I'm stepping in. And it's a pretty impressive list, I think. You need to be kind, you need to be diplomatic, you need to be tactful, you need to be incredibly patient, you need to be very physically strong with both elderly people and sick people and children. You need to be unselfish, you need to be resourceful, you need to be flexible, you need to be brave, you need to be optimistic if you're going to stay sane. Uh, you also have to have very sophisticated negotiating skills, you have to have very highly developed communication skills, and there I would add in, you know, not just with the person you're working with, but also very often for professional carers for, to communicate with and argue with bureaucracies of one kind or another, including the welfare system, but also the medical system. Strong powers of organization, a sense of humor. I, I observed in my own kitchen this morning a wonderful interaction uh, where... My mum told her carer a story that she told her about three million times. Then she stopped herself and she said, have I told you that before? I'm very good at my repeating myself. And her carer, who's wonderful, just laugh, roared with laughter and said, that's okay, I'm really good at listening. So my mum laughed rather than feeling 
you know, it was a wonderful moment. I, I just have so much respect for that kind of skill. Highly developed capacity for tolerating chaos definitely helps. Look, I mean, you know, I could go on, obviously. My point is that the realities of care work are that it's demanding, but it's also highly skilled. And yet we live in a world where we casually refer in public debate, and economists and political scientists do it, and sociologists even do it, uh, to care work as unskilled or low-skilled, and it isn't. And revaluing that to come back to respect, which you've worked on so eloquently in the past, is an absolutely key part of rethinking the welfare issues in this area. Thanks. Thank you, Nicola. Bissaron. Uh, uh, so thank you very much for your uh, fascinating discussions. And, and, and I wanted to pick up on uh, certain themes uh, that uh, you mentioned. And, and, and the first is on this uh, concept of, of normalizing dependency in some sense. This is what I understood from your uh, presentation, uh, Richard, that uh, if we think about it, support uh, can be for everybody and not necessarily for certain people that we normally consider to um, uh, uh, to access uh, welfare. And so this whole point of uh, um, uh, denial of dependence that you mentioned, or this, this myth of independence, uh, is something that is important and that we should test. And so my question is more about how do we go about doing that from uh, our you know, public institutions' perspective? And let me just take a bit of time, uh, Richard. You, you showed one of my favorite slides ever, which is the little pie chart of government spending, uh, which, which I think should be plugged in on every television screen every time we look at the House of Commons, because it shows some very interesting things, right? So that our contribution to the EU budget is 1%, that uh, uh, social welfare is bundled with uh, ridiculous amounts of things, and that we're very good at waging wars in very specific parts of this pie chart, uh, some more successfully uh, than others. And certain parts of this pie chart, whether it's the NHS or the, uh, or the educational system, are more resistant, I think, to stigmatization. But when you look at aspects of welfare, we've been very good over the last 30 years at stigmatizing public spending on certain individuals. So how do we work around this? How do we change uh, this destructive dependency and the narratives that we've built on, uh, uh, on this you know, negative sense of dependence, if you're saying that we're actually all dependent? And again, if you look at this amazing pie chart, if you look at education, we're all accessing education. If you look at the NHS, we're all dependent on the NHS. If you're an amazing entrepreneur, uh, you're relying on amazing public research and development fronts. We're all dependent. So how do we step away from this uh, uh, problem in stigmatization? Aha. Uh -huh. Maybe we should, can, can one of the techies help us get that pie chart I can, I can help you. Ah, uh, you think you can. Nah. Ah, ah, ah. You don't. Oh, no, but it's a different presentation. I cannot. Yeah. Yes. Uh, That's my uh, PowerPoint skills. Yeah. Um, uh, while we're. It's dependent. Yes. 
Who? No. I mean, what struck me. Uh, We've done the demo. No, it, it's it's only getting another yeah, program back, thing. right? It's there we are. Uh, I'll tell you how I got really on to this. When I wrote a uh, I wrote a book um, a long time ago uh, called The Corrosion of Character, which took up uh, a proposition of Max Weber which is that modern political economies, there we are, uh, uh, would, that modern labor forces would increasingly come to represent uh, military life, that the link between uh, um, capitalist labor and military labor would disappear. And the reason I was so interested in this was that what's happened to capitalism since the destruction of this pyramid is that uh, there's been an incredible uh, divergence of, of this. And I began noticing it in very small ways. If you looked at an HR report, the kinds of HR reports which um, began to appear in the late 90s, in place of takes orders well, uh, there are measures of too dependent on this. Uh, Long-term service becomes looked at, which is a form of loyalty, as a negative. So that somebody who switches jobs every three or four years gets a higher report. I, I was looking at high-tech work than somebody who actually stayed with the corporation for 10 or 12, 12 years. That's a way of, um, of creating a notion of autonomy which is essentially anti-hierarchical. It's anti-hierarchical, but it's very unequal because only a few people are able to do that. So in one of the firms that I was studying in Silicon Valley, uh, the numbers of people who were able to jump for, uh, jobs every three or four years was an increasingly shrinking number of people who were being more and more well rewarded. And it was a self-enforcing thing in the HR because the ones who were, who were uh, uh, there were seen as people who couldn't do anything but take orders and be loyal and have service. They had no other autonomous skills. Well, when Blair, the sainted Blair, uh, came into power, he began taking this whole mindset. I think it's... Uh, the previous line. It's a previous slide. He began taking this whole Silicon Valley uh, mindset into the NHS. So that if you were um, a health service worker, not of, at the nurse level, but at the just a level up, uh, a sister, a paramedic, uh, and so on, if you stayed in the hospital where you began uh, your, your, your work, for over seven or eight years, that was now looked at as a lack of initiative. So, this, you know, the, he reinvented the health service five times. 
This, I think, was invention two. I, I really lost track because uh, so did he. Uh, but you understand that that's a mentality that has been brought in. That's a very concrete example of that, that people should move around from hospital to hospital. By iteration five, the notion was that developing a long-term relationship with a patient could get you stuck in providing unobjective and subjective care so that by 2006, that reform was about moving people, using computers to move people around so that doctors had a more objective record on which to base uh, care for patients than interpersonal reaction. So that's, that's how autonomy, it's a, the notion that autonomy is a, 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 an untrammeled good is something that's brought in, I'm sorry to give you such a long answer on this, but it's really important to understand this, that autonomy was first displaced into a new system of, of capitalism and then imported into a sphere like uh, the NHS in which gradually impersonality and computerization was a mark of being able to work autonomously and therefore efficiently. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem we have uh, today. Uh, that essentially the mindset that makes it a versus rather than a combined is what's seen as efficient. It's right. You know, it's whether it, they're paid for. This is why one of the reasons I don't like privatized uh, versus public expenditure. The public has been privatized psychologically. You understand what I'm saying? So it doesn't matter who's paying the bills. Blair was paying all of these bills, but running this as though it were a Silicon Valley operation. Mm -hmm. So. That's why I think this opposition, to me, this opposition, it shouldn't be there, but it is. But perhaps in what I'm understanding is on a, on a bureaucratic level, some of these transformations may have worked from, from an efficiency perspective, but when it comes to patient care and the relationship that would exist of carer and patient, for example, in the health service, uh, is something that is diminished. And this is perhaps what you also developing in this relational autonomy that we're not... Right, you know. Simon, I think we, we should try to find ways to resist the idea that something that isn't putting the relationship of care centrally uh, and attention and respect can be efficient. And I, so right. I, yes, so right. I, yes. think, I, I my, agree my, with my that. My instinct, now, part of me just wants to say, <laughs> let's roll back all that, you know, but, but thinking about it in terms of political discourse, I mean, it seems to me there is something to build on here because I think people's own experience of these institutions, and of course it's the same with schools and universities to some extent, you know, it's not just the welfare institutions, something, so I work on criminal justice, the same thing has happened in the criminal justice system, um, is that people's experience of these institutions is of a very alienating and very often very inefficient uh, institution because this fragmentation and lack of experience mm -hmm. has led to a situation in which we're 
constantly talking to a different person on the phone or seeing a different doctor and repeating the story. You know, so there is a lot of inefficiency in this, in where we've end up, ended up, and we have to kind of call that out. But all our, all our metrics of success, of course. That's the problem. We've got to find different metrics as well. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, Preferably give them up. Where do we disagree? I don't think we do. That's the trouble. <laughs> well, you disagree with us. <laughs> By the way, I want to move on this just so you get where the website is, where you can, if you don't yeah, get it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Okay, it's just the last slide. All these beautiful charts. Mm. Oops, go back. So let, let me kind of uh, tease a few more questions. We'll have, we'll have a bit more time as well. Uh, on this, uh, uh, you know, always pressing question of how, how are you going to fund this uh, new uh, uh, welfare or uh, national care Mm. Uh, uh, service that you mentioned. And, and it's interesting, the, the earlier discussions, the traditional discussions around uh, the relevance of work uh, in actually paying in to the welfare system, which was mm. in the traditional uh, notion, uh, how that is being questioned you know, going forward. So if we're thinking uh, and wearing my economist hat that the labor share of GDP uh, in the future may be decreasing, uh, is, is work the right avenue uh, to look for funding welfare systems? And if not, where can we look instead? Uh, so there are you know, plenty of other options, whether it's in terms of taxing uh, wealth or property or capital. And I wonder if you see this as an opportunity. Uh, if we move away from taxing income, Again, returning to this problem of stigmatization, mm. uh, those mm. who, who work uh, and earn and pay into the system uh, and, and those uh, who don't. Do you, do you see this as a potential opportunity? Mm. Mm. You mean to, to... Well, to remove, to remove the kind of, you know, the, the, the work and the income dimension yeah. as a kind we'll of... Go you know, for propping taxing up. wealth instead. For, for yeah. example. Yeah. Just... yeah, no, that sounds like a good direction to go. <laughs> and pro but property was... taxes are, I mean, absolutely classic... Um, and my worry there, which you know, if I, if I were in charge, that would come in very quickly. But but that I think might also produce a new, another form of you know yes. resistance. Sorry, something funny is happening Richard. with the microphone. Is that all right? Yeah. No. Well, I. This is something actually, uh, Bob Skidelsky and I will probably talk about in in the next lecture, but let me say about this, that when one person has $132 billion of wealth, that expropriating $100 billion of that, leaving this poor Jeff Bezos with only $32 billion of wealth, <laughs> uh, is something we should be doing. And... Um, I don't think it's just a taxation system. I think it's a system of actually expropriating the incomes of uh, the upper 1%. Um, mm. I, I mean, I don't... I, 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 I think it's... I don't know. 
maybe it's the old socialist in me. I suppose it is. But I just simply think that, uh, you know, with $100 billion, if, say, we took it away from him, you could make quite a nice dent in problems of, um, of the NHS or certainly of the LSE's uh, annual deficit and so on. But we never think about that, that after a certain point, it's not a matter of taxation, but taking away uh, that kind of ownership. Now, there is a limit to that, obviously, because uh, a lot of those that wealth is, is not controlled by Britain or the U.S. I'm very interested that President Xi in China is now having a, a, a consultations about expropriation because he's looking at a situation. So we just had a long discussion about this in Cambridge on Sunday. He's looking at a situation which the prior regime had a vast expansion of billionaires, and most of that money left China. It's floating somewhere in some banking space. And he wants it back. And we all know what, you know, the problems of President Xi are. Uh, but isn't that reasonable? I mean, he wants wealth made uh, should be shared by all above a certain limit. As I say, I'm talking about leaving $32 billion on the table for this one person. I don't know how he'd spend it even that much, and expropriating over a certain amount of, of the capital that exists among this top one-tenth of one percent. So I, I would, I don't know, I would, I, I think we have to have a much more brutally confrontational relationship to the modern political economy than we do. I don't think there's any way of sort of nicely slipping in a little social justice into it. And more of this to come in a couple of weeks. So thank you both very much. Uh, let's open this up uh, uh, to you, uh, the audience. Um, uh, we'll take uh, uh, questions in, in threes. Uh, and if you let us know your name uh, and affiliation, uh, and, and please uh, keep them short so we allow a lot of people to speak. So, uh, yes, the person with the scarf there in blue, uh, the person then second with the shorts, and the person there with the glasses. So, these three. Shorts in this weather? <laughs> That's the this person is with the shorts. Hardy That's right. LOC. So, name and affiliation. Hi there. Uh, good evening. Thank you to all the speakers. My name's Henry Shelders. I'm a, a master's student studying economic history at the LSE. Uh, I, I wanted to pick up. Professor Sennett on a few of his statements because I think they're thoroughly unresearched and make absolutely no qualitative and quantitative sense. So let's start with the Jeff Bezos example. This is sort of this zero-sum welfare idea that you could somehow extract $100 billion of wealth from Jeff Bezos. I mean, anyone who knows anything about the Amazon's equity structure can tell you that's utterly implausible. It's, welfare is not a zero-sum game. You can't take money from one person and reallocate it to another if it's vested in the form of equity in a company. All that would do is destroy one of the world's most valuable firms. Uh, you know, a, a very, very little marginal gain to anyone else. So, I mean, practically, that, that statement, I'm afraid, is, is 
not founded in reality. That's very clear. Can we leave it to the, the one? No, the second point is about oh. universal credit. Again, this entire section was unresearched and not based in factual reality. Point one, Theresa May was not the driving force behind universal credit. Point two, the comparison made between a multivariate and univariate welfare system is not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. The correct comparison would have, been, would have been between the system that adopted under New Labour and the coalition government's welfare system. Comparing a hypothetical welfare system in the future, which may have its benefits, to the current one is not the correct analogy, not the correct comparison to make there. And the third point is this idea about food banks. Again, the literature on this is quite divided. Claiming that universal credit drove up the use of food banks is not what the research says. There are arguments on both sides there, and there's no empirical facts to prove that point. So thank my you question is, you know, yes. why, why, tell me why I'm wrong. So because I, thank, thank you very much. Uh, very, very few points. Yes, the gentleman, uh, sorry, the, the person there with uh, his hands on mouth. Yes, yes. Just, just in front there, please. Further down. Yeah. I think, thanks for a nice talk. Um, so just, <laughs> I, I just wondering um, to what extent you think the. The Brexit debate um, is, is about diverting attention away from domestic issues, primarily domestic poverty. Thank you very much. And there was one last question there. Thank you. Uh, Fred Genesee, I'm visiting um, from Montreal. I'm a researcher at a university in Montreal and not in this area. I'm in psychology. I have a simple question for you. Is there a, any state... Uh, that you know of that is approximating what you think should be done or doing what you think should be done as an example? Because there is this issue, I guess, always of how practical or feasible these kinds of uh, innovations or revolutions are. Thank you very much. Uh, Richard. Richard. Uh, Brexit, other comparable countries and your methodology. Well, what, what I would say to the gentleman in shorts is post, post, post this on, on the website. Let's, let's go through it, have a, have a discussion of it. Um, I, uh, and to the, to the man uh, uh, about, about the Brexit uh, r relation to this domestic policy, I... Yes, and I think um, I think it's going to be a problem for the Labour Party that dealing, if it comes to power, if we come into power, that the problem is that the difficulties posed by Brexit, and I want to say this rather diplomatically, the difficulties posed by the Brexit leanings of our leader are going to mean that we're going to be preoccupied by this rather than focusing on domestic policy. So this isn't just a, an evasive policy of the right. I mean, it's something within the left as well. And, you know, if I, my crystal ball is always cloudy, but uh, I think we probably will have a no will crash out of the EU and we're going to spend five years trying to deal with the, the 
negative results of that. The LSE has been doing a lot of modeling of what will happen if we have a um, if we don't have if we have a brutal Brexit, and it's very very depressing. Our website has lots of info about that. Um, you ask me if, if there's any regime that I can point to that does what I like, and I give you a very hackneyed answer, that the Nordic states in the 90s had a welfare, had welfare regimes that seemed to me to be pretty much moving in the direction that, that I'm talking about. But those regimes have now been um, been weakened by uh, principally, you know, the right has had a great effect in those countries in not only in the question of immigration but in the question of how the welfare state is organized. So um, could I say about that that, uh, and maybe this is a privilege of being an academic, that whether uh, existing reality has ever produced what I want or not is not really that um, a, much a worry to me. And I mean, I, I, I really think that what intellectuals should be doing is talking about what ought to be rather than working out the mechanics of getting from A to B to C to D to E to F. I think the way in which we think about social policy should be much more provocative rather than uh, uh, telling peop people in government how to do it. We should make them feel ashamed, uh, you know, upset, and so on. That's, that's, that's what a social policy, in my view, ultimately uh, ought to be. Um, about the psychological reality that Nikki and I have been talking about, I don't think that's idealistic. That's recognizing something we all know in uh, the intimate sphere and saying that, you know, which is real, uh, but finding a way to magnify it so that it's something that's in the more impersonal and public sphere as 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 well, um, but uh, just to sum this up, I mean, I think, and I think it's a real danger in the school. The notion, the question, is it practical, is not a question you should be asking yourselves. I, I just don't think that's our role. Right, across departments. So let's take another yeah. three uh, questions. As the gentleman there on the yes, uh, then right at the back, second, and on the top, the person with the red top and glasses. Thank you very much. Brilliant talks. Uh, well, I'm a MSC alumnus, not social worker, international relations department. Um, could you just say something about, um, you've heard me indicated, but this idea which has been bundled out of the universal basic income as a means of. Um, Sewing web. I'd be interested to know what Stieg would say of this concept, which um, you, I don't think you referred to it, but it's being discussed a universal basic income. We'll be talking about that next week. Oh. <laughs> okay. And, yes. Maybe some produce, yes? 
Hi, I'm Josh. Thank you guys so much for coming. I'm a master's student in the sociology department. Um, and so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that the success of the welfare state occurred after World War II, right? So there's the Great Depression, then we have the war, and it's kind of like a radical change in society. Um, and so, you know, that lasts for a good amount of time, and then obviously we have some kind of neoliberal policies that come into play. Um, so my question is, what has to happen today for us to essentially go back or to reverse? I mean, the world is so divided today. Um, how do we incorporate this kind of, I, I don't know, this is probably a, a practical question, but in the sense, like, what, <laughs> what has to happen, you know, without just relying on climate change to, you know, make that the radical change that, you know, we probably don't want? Thank you. Yes, and the question there. Um, thank you for the talk. Uh, my question is, is, and this may also be something that you feel lies outside the role of the school, but um, it seems to me that the arguments against these kinds of ideas come from a place of fear of being taken advantage of and also um, like anger at having to go to work and do a job that you don't like while other people are on benefits. So how do you think we can overcome those fears? Thank you very much. So are you going to take mm. the universal basic income question or are we going to do another one? Next week. Next week. Mm. So there's a question mm. there and probably the final question. This is so good. Hi. Uh, thanks for the talk. That was really interesting. Um, I'm doing a master's in political sociology at the moment. Um, I think the, uh, the reforms that you kind of outline are kind of inspiring and intuitive, but I think the issue with the welfare state, especially in the UK, is that it was designed, I guess Beveridge designed it as a social uh, safety net. Um, and the issue now that it's being kind of utilized as an um, all-encompassing um, uh, institution, especially in areas of, like, I guess, top-ups, um, so is the, is the uh, avenue for reform in labor market as opposed to the welfare state? Is that where we should be focusing our efforts, do you think? I, I, I want to say something about uh, ideal and realism, but maybe I should do it. Shall I, or shall I do it? No, no I've got the, uh, why don't I say We've finally found something we somewhat disagree about, because although I think it's incredibly important for intellectuals to think about how things should be, I think we also have to think about conditions of existence as social scientists. And just to take the example of the Nordic systems, uh, where very similar tensions have shown up in their criminal justice systems, I think it's terribly important for us to recognise that particularly in that example, many of the politicians didn't decide what they decided because they especially wanted to, their own values changed. They saw, and this comes, you know, this comes back to the very last question, they saw uh, they were responding to views out there. And that means that in order to, um, we've got to recognize that and we've got to try and change the discourse. Yes. Uh, you know, in order to change people's perceptions of their interests. And that's a very, very hard thing to do. But I do think that we should be interested in, you know, and I think that is in part why we're interested in how we frame these arguments, because we want to convince people. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, that's practical. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely something that is possible because it was done very successfully in the 1980s. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> in the opposite way. I, I mean, maybe I've been a little too provocative about this. I have, I have a uh, about, to me, the entry point into, um, into 
changing the way the welfare state works is um, to to make um, I guess uh, how can I put this to change the attitude of professional uh, welfare workers in large part. This is my own view of this. To make welfare much more the provision of welfare much more uh, cooperative uh, than something that relies on expertise. I know that up front, you know, I'm a housing specialist. I know that up front in the way in which sink estates work. Uh, they're often, um, you know, these are estates that are, are failing. Uh, they're often overwhelmed with experts who don't take the residents in as uh, part of the solution as well, that they're only problematic and that their behavior is something that in most cases needs um, addressing in order for the estate to prosper. And I'm thinking of very particular kinds of behaviors like um, alcoholism, drug problems, and so on. These are all treated in a way as problems that require expert help in which the person uh, subject to suicide, alcoholic for instance, becomes in need of treatment. And it seems to me from the point of view of dealing with a housing estate that character reform is not, uh, uh, or medical reform is not really the issue. That if people in housing estates are confronted with, look, whatever your problems are, you know, we've got to keep the dog shit off the lawns, and you can play a role in that by being dog monitor, that that gives people something to do, whatever the conditions that they're in. Uh, the point I'm making about this is that my point of entry into this would be how much can we convert into a cooperative activity things which are now overly professionalized in the provision of welfare. And I'd be very interested, I've talked to people in the NHS about doing exactly the same thing. For instance, cleaners in the NHS often have a much more intimate knowledge of the bodies of, of patients than, than consultants who see them, you know, for five minutes a day. Cleaners are never consulted about the, the condition of their patients that they're cleaning up. So my point of reform about this would be really to reimagine what social work in social welfare is about. I don't know if that's, that's just where I would start. And this is very close to what Nicola was saying also in terms of how we value the type of social work and how we need to you know, change how we value mm. work in terms of its social outcomes. Yes. Mm. Right. And there was the, the question around the, the, the fear of being taken advantage in the, in the workplace. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a very basic... If you're, if you're working at a crappy job and somebody else is, is on benefits, of course you're going to be angry. Um, what we know and is not working, I mean, there's quite a lot of work that's been done on, on um, what the, the actual statistical reality of that is. And people who are absolutely off labor 
who are capable of laboring are in this country between something like 25 to 3.1% of the of the non-working uh, population on benefits. But they loom large in the imagination of people. They, you know, it's uh, that old, old thing of symbol, it's a symbolic inflation. And um, there hasn't been enough discussion of the, f it, it's, you know, it's in a way like, you know, immigrants are taking all of our jobs, you know, which is, a vast symbolic inflation of a small uh, set of very localized problems. So it's a reality that people have that um, that resentment, but it's a it's a reality which also is an ir irreality as well, um, and we should have been dealing with with those statistics with the people who have that fear, rather than saying, oh, we've got to engineer the system, as in this universal income, so that everybody is put under, the, un, under pressure to work rather than not work, which um, um, we're going to be talking, Robert Skidelsky, who's here, and I'm going to be talking more about this, we're going to reset the framework for talking about this in the, um, in the next uh, session of this, I hope you can all come, where the work isn't there, talking about what, what, what does things like universal income, which is a form of welfare, what does that mean under those conditions when work itself is, is uh, shrinking? Very good. And, and obviously, you know, coming back also to what Nicola was saying, uh, there, there is work to do on how we frame uh, whether it's universal basic income, whether it's access to welfare, uh, so that we're not stigmatizing any new ideas that are emerging. Um, so it's uh, come to 8 o'clock, and I would like very much to thank uh, uh, Richard and Nicola for tonight's session. I hope you have some inspiration about you know, rethinking uh, dependence, and, and please uh, join us over the next uh, few weeks for the remaining sessions. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.